You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. How do we reduce plant pests without using chemicals? One of the best integrated pest management methods is increasing biological controls in the form of predatory insects. Sure, we can buy them, but without the right conditions they won't last long. If we use certain tactics, we can attract predator insects to come and take care of the problem for us. Dr Ian Smith is back, and he's going to take us from a state of anxiety watching our poor plants get belted by pests to a state of serenity knowing that our garden is resilient enough to take care of itself. A big thanks to my mentor, Karen Smith, for guest hosting this unsponsored episode. Welcome everybody. My name's Karen Smith and I'm a guest host here today on Plants Grow Here. And I am interviewing Dr. Ian Smith. And we're going to be talking about designing a pest-resistant garden. So welcome, Ian. Great to be back. Thank you for having me. Yes, good to be speaking with you again. Okay, so designing a pest-resistant garden, how do we do that? How do we create an environment for that? So a lot of the times when people are gardening, the only time they sort of think about pests is when their prize vegetable is suddenly being munched to the ground. And Fair enough. <laughs> when you, Yeah, understandably. But usually by that point, it's usually when you get a spike in a pest, it's actually an indication of an ecological imbalance. So the reason that aphids can breed so fast and the reasons why aphids do breed so fast is because naturally there's a lot of things that eat them. So when we create our urban areas or gardens, the the natural enemies, as we call it, so that's insects that, that tend to be predatory, Yeah, they don't survive well in disturbed environments often. So... What happens if you take a hypothetical, say, veggie patch in a regular urban backyard is we clear out all the long grass, it's all nice and manicured, and so that environment really favours pest insects like aphids because so all the habitat that would support a pest species, uh, sorry, a beneficial species has been taken out and the Pest insects can be very mobile, they move in, they breed very quickly, and there's nothing to keep them in check. So by designing a pest-resistant garden, what we're talking about is trying to create an environment that really encourages those beneficial insects, natural enemies. And what would that be? So there's a huge range of them. The most charismatic is the ladybug. That's the first one a lot of people talk about. Yeah. So ladybirds, they're actually quite if you're an aphid, they're quite an aggressive insect, uh, an aggressive predator. So they, they will use the protein from soft-bodied insects like aphids and mealybugs. And yeah, and so the more ladybirds usually, uh, the more pest insect control you've got. But then you, there's a whole host of other ones which people generally don't think about or even can't see. They're too small or too fast. So you've got insects like micro wasps. So they're wasps that will lay their eggs in the either the eggs or the bodies of other insects. If you think of the movie Aliens, that was a parasitoid yeah. <laughs> bursting out of the human, just to give you a gruesome example. Yeah. Yes, nature's not always nice. No. Um, and then you've got 
A lot of people would be familiar with hoverflies. So they look like little bees, but they just sort of hover in above sort of your veggie patch. Um, they almost like look like they're on hanging from a string. And they're, they're actually really great um, to have in the garden because they both as adults, they pollinate flowers. But as juveniles, they're actually predatory. So they will eat, again, the soft-bodied insects like your aphids, your mealybugs, and all those sort of pests. Mm. And then you've also got the more generalist things like spiders. So spiders in very effective at particularly flying pests. Is that because they catch them in their webs, you know, yeah. when they're flying? Yeah. Uh, and also they, take, they, they fit into a whole range of ecological niches. So you've got the ground-dwelling jumping spiders, you've got the burrowing spiders, you've got web-building spiders. So, and and they'll, t- they'll eat anything they can get. So if you have a lot of pests in your garden, then their diet is going to be mostly pests. <laughs> uh-huh. it's, do you find it a little bit tricky at times to convince people that spiders are a good thing to have in their garden? Yeah, so a lot of people who are sort of in the men- mentality of encouraging beneficials they they tend to be happy to sort of entertain the idea but there is also a lot of you will get some resistance from people that you know not just just generally not comfortable with spiders and you know that's you can't blame them that's just something where that's raised we're raised with you know as a kid don't touch that that's dangerous and often it gets instilled with people but the vast majority of spiders are of no risk to humans. So, mm. <laughs> and yeah, they won't bother you if you don't bother them. So, yeah, no, and uh, encourage them as much as you can. And so, what sort of things will encourage beneficial insects into your garden or beneficial species? What can we do? What can we add? Yeah, so one of the most well studied is uh, the introduction of pollen and nectar. So this is basically getting as many flowers as you can in the garden. That can be simpler said than done because that's when, when flowers are most prominent in spring is great, but also if you could try and encourage them year-round. So getting a diversity of flowers that you know flower from you know late winter to early spring, late spring through summer. So, and also trying to get a diversity of flowers as well. So if you think of something something like a eucalypt flower that's quite an open flower and that's there's insects that specialize in those sort of large open flowers but then you have the the tube tube shaped flowers that are very narrow and that and that caters to a different type of uh, insect as well so usually if there's an ecological niche there's an insect that was adopted to it so trying to just get that diversity of pollen and nectar and the reason for that is often it doesn't really matter what diet insects have. To produce eggs um, to reproduce is quite taxing and energy intensive. So what a lot of insects have adapted to do is even if they're predatory insects, they'll still utilize nectar as that extra sugar hit to try and produce more eggs and carry on their species and genetic line. Mm. Yeah, and the another part of it to think about is also looking at different heights. So not you know a, a ground ground dwelling species isn't really going to be terribly impressed with a uh, flower that's you know several meters in the air. So trying to get those flowers you know scattered across the garden, but also at different heights. So just trying to cater to as many many insects and insect types as possible. So you know gardens like a cottage garden or a meadow garden. I, I know some of the meadow gardens are becoming a little bit more vogue, but 
for a long time there, particularly through the drought, everything just seemed to be in the landscape sector all about grasses because they're, you know, more drought resistant. And we just went through a whole decade where just about everything was planted out was a type of grass. So I am starting to see more flowering plants around now. So do you think those, do you think that we learnt anything about or the general community learned anything from that, from that drought period and now the flowers are all back? Like that, that that's made a difference to the pests in their gardens? Yeah. I think the community, we used to love these almost lawn bowl-esque lawns. And hedges. Yes, and we we hung on to them as long as we could. And then I think once the our prolonged periods of droughts hit, People learnt to embrace messiness and going back to sort of a, almost a bushland structure, that sort of slightly messier cottage garden look. And that's actually fantastic as far mm. as uh, beneficial insects and insect diversity goes because we know, although we don't think of grasses as flowering, spe- flowering species, they actually are. And they're so having areas of long grass is good because one, it provides pollen, but It also provides this long, complicated structure. So there's a lot of species that love long grass. Um, So long grass shades the soil. It means the soil's moister. So if you're like a burrowing insect, you actually like long grass because you've got this nice, quiet, sheltered area down in in between the tussocks. So having a blended garden with grasses and smaller and, you know, all, all different. Like when I think of those meadow gardens, they might have a real variety of different types of different heights and different types of flowers yeah and diversity begets diversity the more okay the more you have the more you have so yeah yeah <laughs> and in that it's also good to think of sort of structure outside of just just living plants so you might also want to consider things like deadwood so when you have decomposing wood there's a lot of animals that you know they live in that decomposing wood which then mm. attracts other insects that will live off those insects in there. And so, and when you get that year round higher populations of insects, that means beneficial insects still, even in the leanest months, they've still got something to eat. So, when you get to, you know, peak growing season for vegetables, they're still around to jump on any pest insects that move in. Whereas, if you've got a garden that, you know, during the colder months, there's basically nothing there. It takes longer for a beneficial insect to come back than it does for a pest insect to move in because those pest insects, they've evolved to find plants and breed as fast as possible, whereas the beneficial insects, they are fairly good at hunting down, but they take longer to get there. (laughs) Hmm. It's really quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So the other aspect we often don't think about is the structure going vertically of our gardens. So oh, I, sp- I suppose a lot of horticulturists would be well aware of this, but it's also beneficial to insects is you have, you've got your ground layer, you've got your grass layer, you've got your shrub layer, and then you've got your short trees and you've got your tall trees. And having that diversity in structure and height is, can be just as important as having a diversity of plants as well. And so, you know, you were mentioning you know, having some dead wood around so you get blue tongues and little critters in the garden. And blue tongues love eating snails. For the and record. they do, yes, <laughs> yes. And so by creating that habitat, they're more likely to stay around 
and live in your garden longer. Otherwise, they'll just wander off to someone else's place if you keep clearing everything out. Yeah, you just you want to avoid a situation where all resources disappear because yeah, if there's no food around, animals will move away or die out, and mm. it's it's quicker it's it's quicker for a species to breed up than it is to move into a new area. If particularly in sort of urban areas where you got fences and different, you know, you got roads, Cats. it could slow things moving around. Mm. That said, if you've got a particularly green and leafy in suburb, then it might be very quick to encourage things to move in. So, you know, if you've got a very simple garden, you start putting in that diversity and your neighbour's got nice, diverse gardens, all all the good critters will go, oh, look, my habitat's increased. I'm going to move over there as well. Yeah, yeah. Talking about different heights and moving things around and diversity, I even read the other day about people who are putting in a veggie garden tend to put them in rows like they'll have all the spinach in a row and then they have the lettuce all in a row and you know carrots or whatever so that it all looks really neat and tidy but in this article it's suggested that you mix it up it might look a little bit different but it's actually better for increasing that diversity for the beneficial insects would you agree with that yeah well not so much diversity for beneficial insects but most insects that feed on a plant are not generalist herbivores. They specialize to a specific plant. And the problem with that is most of our vegetables come from only a handful of species. So, you know, most cabbages is from the brassica family and most okay. lettuces are from the asteraceae family. So if you plant nice, neat blocks and rows of various brassicas and asteraceae, as soon as one insect that specializes in eating then comes in, they've just it's got a, a whole patch. It's a yeah. feast. So, yeah. yeah, if you can scatter your garden, your vegetables, either by scattering them by type, so, you know, putting a brassicas surrounded by asteraceae, surrounded by something else, that's better than trying to block them together because mm. a lot of those pest insects, they rely on sort of odor and various volatile chemicals in the air to find their their host plant and if you mix mix the plants together it just makes it that much harder for them to actually find and if they do find a plant well they can't just crawl across a leaf to the next one or make a short hop they actually have to hunt for it yeah and insects won't don't like doing that they they don't like spending more energy than they have to because they're quite small food can be hard to find so just making a joy flight scouting for more food is is something they tend to avoid yeah, and if you can also, if you can actually scatter plants together with even ornamental plants, that can also have the same effect. So, you know, if you maybe consider planting a small decorative uh, flower, flowering barrier in your uh, veggie patch. So, yeah, maybe consider doing a row of something like alyssum, a nice cottage flower. And, you know, that way you get that flower resource and you also get something else where beneficial insects can sort of take shelter in while waiting more prey. Yeah, exactly. So what about the weather? You know, does that have an impact, you know, where where your garden is and, you know, if you're in a high wind area, for example, or super hot or very wet? Yeah, so it absolutely does. So... What, what's, what's something great to do if you want to sort of encourage this uh, sort of diversity-resistant garden is uh, it needs to focus on what we call the microclimate. So microclimate is 
how the temperature and humidity and all those abiotic factors, how they measure at a specific location. So down at ground level in your vegetable garden, you probably want it warm but not hot, but also humid, and you don't want a lot of wind because wind will damage your crops and it will dry, uh, crops, sorry. <laughs> it will damage your uh, vegetables and it will dry them out very quickly if there's high wind speed. But on top of that, beneficial insects, insects are small. They don't like strong winds, so um, mm. they get blown around. So it's, um, what a great way to, a good way to sort of, sort of improve this sort of diversity is focus on reducing the wind speed. So you want that sort of, you know, calm, green, humid garden, you know, somewhere you want to lie down on a summer day is sort of what you're focusing mm. on. So you can sort of do that by working with what, if you've got a bigger garden or in an urban area, sort of looking at where are the large trees and can you you know if you don't have any trees you know getting some in or possibly just as larger shrubs and use that use that to slow the wind down because the slower the wind the easier it is for insects to get around but and then when you slow that wind speed down you're also preventing sort of a drying effect so if you think in summer you have a strong wind that's basically you know that that's great for drying your clothes but not so much if you're a plant and mm. When plants get stressed in those sort of inf- environments, it also means they're not producing the standard chemicals they use to protect themselves from pest insects. Uh, so, And when plants get stressed, the pest insects can smell that and they will come and they will focus on that stressed plant. And once they're established in that plant, well, now you've got a high population in your garden. So mm. trying to keep plants healthy as well. So trying to keep that moisture up. So, you know, mulch and uh, keeping the soil shaded, you know, standard garden procedure, really. You know, you want your garden to be nice and moist and healthy. And yeah, so by achieving that, it's not just good for the plants. It's also good for beneficial insects and plant and insect diversity. All these little insects that are coming in, does having water around even make a difference to them? I mean, I know because I've got a swimming pool, I've always got dragonflies and stuff flying or hovering around so does that have an have an any effect on beneficial insects it will affect the more mobile species so smaller species they tend not to be able to travel for water but as you said the larger more mobile species things like bees and uh, dragonflies they'll make use of it um, as will flies and so particularly good for pollination actually just make sure you're not getting mosquitoes in there as well. So possibly if you do have standing water, just uh, check for that. Mm. Yeah, if you if you want to, yeah, if you put out a tray of water, just uh, have a look and see what's landing there. See if you've got a lot of fruit trees and the bees are using it, well, that's uh, that's going to improve your fruit yield. And uh, yeah, and if you've got in dragonflies, well, dragonflies love to, they'll eat a range of insects as well. So, Oh, I just love them. They just look so cool. Yes, they're very prehistoric, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So it's always, and I believe they're quite territorial. Is that right? Yeah. So if particularly if you see them in parklands, and if you just sit stand there and watch them, you'll see they just tend to stand. You stay in the one location. Mm. That said, there's always there's always exceptions. If you're studying insects, there's you can say yes, they usually are this, but then you always find one that isn't. So <laughs> mm. there's probably some that are highly territorial, and then some that are communal, and then some that just freelance and run roam, roam around. And so, would it be beneficial? I know that some companies sell beneficial insects. Like once you've got all your new planting in, and because you've you know that's all a disturbed soil, and it takes a while for them 
to the plants to grow up a bit to encourage beneficials in. Is it would it be worth investing in buying some and releasing them into your garden to begin with, or do you think they quickly colonise once you get the planting done? Yeah, so yeah, buying them is quite effective. It's probably better to see them more as a alternative to, alternative to insecticides because you release them, they'll control them. They will persist if if you've got the environment for them, but potentially. If they're not there already, there's probably a reason for it. So potentially if you do release them, they may not persist. And you also need to consider that the reason companies sell those insects isn't necessarily because they're the best for your environment. It's more that they're the best for being able to be bred and sold. So it is effective, but yeah, it's it's more about treating an outbreak rather than using it to seed a population. It may help. It just depends if 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 you were if you knew they were already in the area, then it's probably not going to help as a seed population. But you know, if maybe if you're in sort of a, you know, a very, you know, inner urban area where there's, there's a lot of concrete and you've just created this nice little oasis, then yeah, it it potentially could act as a seed population. Mm. And uh, what sort of things should people avoid if they want to bring beneficials into the garden? Yeah, so excessive use of insecticides. I know we, you know, you see a whole bunch of aphids on a lot of plants. You might be tempted to, you know, find the most potent potent uh, insecticide you can and sort of spray the garden. But in, if you go overboard with that, uh, most insecticides also take out beneficial insects. And mm. as I mentioned before, beneficial insects take longer to recover than pest insects. So I have heard stories of people who've gone out and got some pretty significant, pretty serious <laughs> insecticides. And uh, their neighbor who has, who had the, you know, much the same environment mm. going forward, they didn't have much of next season, they didn't have much of a pest problem, but the one that did use insecticides actually did. So by all means, use insecticides if you need to, but don't go overboard. You yeah. know, you don't go spraying ornamentals if they're not at risk uh, because... Uh, pest insects are actually food for the beneficial insects. So, you know, if they're just feeding on the odd leaf on a nice ornamental nearby, but, you know, it's only a couple of leaves, well, just let it be because something's probably going to move in and, you know, eat them or lay their eggs in them and um, you want those guys around. I know um, there is a product on the market that is a certified organic product, that, but it's uh, evidently has enhancements in it to attract beneficial insects it's an organic oil but it's enhanced you know the claim is that it's enhanced to attract beneficials into the into the garden okay um i had not heard of that i would have to see how it worked i i suppose if it has certain plant volatiles that might it's not meant to harm your beneficial insects yeah so, sorry is it a herb insecticide insecticide yeah oh okay well, all uh, insecticides have different effects on different groups. So some insects will be more resistant. So it's always good if you are going to rely on an insecticide is to start with your least deadly and then work your way up. <laughs> certified organic. I'm, you know, a lot of people are going for the certified organic uh, least toxic. So they don't actually, they're an unscheduled product. Whereas when you go up to like schedule five and schedule six, you're knocking everything out. I can remember being at a 
talk one day given by a governing organisation that governs chemicals. And a few people asked this question because it was media people. What about, you know, homemade recipes to kill insects? And one fellow said, you know, we invest a lot of money in producing a product that's least toxic and safe to the environment, but people can kind of make up their own concoction that kills, that's non-selective and kills everything, including beneficials. Do you have an opinion on that or...? Yeah, so when you're dealing with gardens, you can get away with a whole host of control methods because you're not you're not really limited to cost or time. Like if it was a farm, you know, you're spraying, you may have to spray a hectare sure. or something. Whereas in a garden, you can rely, you know, if something doesn't work, well, you know, it's a small veggie patch, you can redo it. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, most, there's actually a lot of quite simple control measures you can use. So things like... You know, soapy water. So any so soap is a surfactant. It breaks yeah. surface tension. So any soapy water on an insect, it covers up their breathing pores. Um, to not use jargon, and it just by breaking that surface tension, it sits in them and that suffocates quite quickly. And that's, you know, obviously you, in an agricultural environment, you're not going to use soapy water to spray a whole field. Yeah. But uh, yeah. in a garden, you know, you can you can get away with that. And this. A whole range of plant compounds that we don't think of as compounds, but uh, plant compounds, but we use them in everyday life, and that they originated as a naturally occurring insecticide in plants to protect them. So things like caffeine, that was that's an insecticide. Um, so you know, using things like uh, you know, I think you hear about coffee grounds being used in insecticide, and that's why. Um, same with uh, tobacco. The nicotine is an insecticide. So, yeah, a, a lot of those stories about making your insecticides, they often do work. And the reason they're not used anywhere else is they're just not effective on larger scale. But, you know, if you're just managing your own garden and, you know, it's not in, it, uh, you've got the time and energy to do it. I mean, yeah, yeah, not as many plants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And so, is there anything else that people should be thinking about? You know, monitoring, for example, should you be monitoring what's happening and and see what's effective and and monitor, you know, seeing what insects that you've got in there, whether they're a pest or a beneficial? Yeah, so monitoring is really good in two, in two ways. So, you know, going out sort of in the cooler part of the evening or during the peak of the, the day and just stand there for a few minutes and see what's around because... It's easier to control pests when they're small in number than when they've already eaten everything. So I know in my own garden, I I was just wondering what was wrong with the plants. They just kept disappearing and I looked around and I could not see anything. There didn't seem to be any problem. And then I came out on a cool evening and there was just slugs and snails everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I had sort of a self-wicking bed that was lined with plastic and they just got in between the plastic and the wood. And that's just, it was causing major problems. So yeah, that that's one of the key things is to re- eliminate sort of breeding areas where any pest insects might be taking refuge and replacing that with something that, you know, is more beneficial to other insects. So in the end, I end up cutting away that plastic so it's more exposed and um, yeah, going forward, looking to sort of get some more flowering plants in there as well. Sure. So being observant and 
checking things out regularly, as you say, especially at night time, because that's often when things come out, mm. even possums. Yes, yes, that's uh, that can be uh, that can be wondering why the snails are so hungry. No, it wasn't snails. <laughs> no, no. But you can also, if you get really interested into it, takes a bit of learning. But you know, you can put out trays of soapy water if you're actually interested on what else is there beyond just what's you know eating plants and vegetables. Is you can just overnight put out a tray of soapy water and in the morning just tip it into a tray and just see what insects are in there. You know, if you're only seeing a scattered, you know, a couple of aphids and maybe a fly or two, you're like, well, maybe my garden's not supporting much diversity. Whereas if you put it out and it's just, what are all these hundreds of insects? Well, you know, you're probably mm. doing something right. Mm. So yeah, I'd encourage anyone just to put out an insect, an insect trap, however you want to do it. You can use sticky traps, you can use water traps, you can just use a net if you'd rather not kill insects, um, you know, just run a insect net through a um, some shrubs and... Just observe what's in there. Yeah. So keeping your eyes open and and just, as you say, observing. So Mm. is there anything else you'd like to add about about beneficial insects or uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add, you'd like people to know? Yeah, just embrace the mess. (laughs) Yeah. Get Get a lot of structure in there. Have areas that look like bushland. Have areas that are unkempt. Have areas that are kempt. Yeah. Just get as much diversity in however you can with whatever size garden you have. Yeah. Uh, I've got a very small garden at the moment living in the inner suburbs, but you know I've managed to put in a couple of logs there. I've got some ground covers, but I've got a next-door neighbour's got a tree overhanging with a nice colistamin, so when they flower, I get all the bees move in. And So, yeah, there's, there's always ways to work with what you've got and get that diversity yeah. in there. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Well, I think that's... Uh been a really interesting topic and certainly something that uh, we all should be thinking about and moving forward. The last thing we need to be doing is spraying harsh chemicals around. And I know it's very hard sometimes to convince people not to, but the more we educate people about this particular topic, the better all round, I think. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ian. That was a really interesting topic and I'm sure it's something that uh, everybody can benefit from either on a, on a home scale, whether it's an inner city garden to an acreage or or bigger. So thanks very much. Always great to be here. Thanks for your time. Supporting a healthy, biodiverse garden is something we're passionate about at Plants Grow Here. And I've been using these tactics as a pro-maintenance gardener for a while now. They really work if you can hold off on using chemicals long enough for that predator population to build up. So please be patient after you've followed Ian's advice. Come back and listen to this episode in a few weeks to squeeze the most juice out of it that you can. Because if you're like me, you're probably going to forget a lot of it if you only listen to it once. In the meantime, listen to episode 33, Intro to Integrated Pest Management, to learn the fundamentals of the philosophy we talk about so much on this podcast. Or you could even check out episode 64 on Shelter Belts if you'd like to hear more from Ian.